Welcome to the Truth Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Harrison. The Truth Matters Podcast is a production of Grace to You, the Bible teaching ministry of John MacArthur. And my guest today is the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> Phil mostly, Johnson. Mostly myth, I'm afraid. <laughs> Phil Johnson, executive director at Grace to You. Phil, how you doing, my friend? I'm good. How you feeling, I'm, man? I'm good. You good? Feel great. Yeah. Doing good? Awesome. Well, Phil, we brought you here today on the Truth Matters Podcast because, as you know, what we try to accomplish here on the Truth Matters Podcast is to do a deep dive into one of John's resources. So we want to take our viewers, take our listeners into some of the backstory around some of John's books, his sermon series, his blog series. And today we're here to talk with you about John's book, The Truth War. All right. Okay. Now, you were the editor for The Truth War. In fact, John dedicated the Truth War to you for your, quote, considerable editorial efforts, unquote. <laughs> um, so we want to talk to you. Can you take us back? Take us back to 2007 when the book was published. Matter of fact, you may want to go back a few years before that be to talk about all the things that led up to the book. Help us understand uh, and establish some context around what brought about the publication of the book and what are some of the key themes that John hits on in The Truth War? Yeah, now the book was conceived, obviously, more than a year before it was actually published. So around 2005 or 2006, we began to talk about the concept on this book. Uh, and at that time, the emerging church movement was beginning to peak and gain all sorts of influence. Christianity Today had done a cover story on the emerging church as if this is the next great wave and everybody needs to understand it and be on board. And uh, we were pretty deeply troubled about the direction of that movement and some of the features of it. It was an amorphous sort of movement. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't point to any one individual and say that epitomizes the whole movement. But there were some standout people, Rob Bell and and uh, Brian McLaren, <clears throat> and interestingly, uh, maybe a half a dozen lesser-known lights who were con considered leaders at the time, who since then have utterly abandoned the faith, uh, like Rob Bell. I mean, he, he I wouldn't consider him a Christian at all anymore. I don't know if he still professes to be, but uh, whatever sort of spirituality he talks about these days is not historically Christian. And I, we could see the drift of that movement even then, uh, around 2005, 2006, uh, and it seemed at the time no one was critiquing it. And uh, John MacArthur had done a series of messages on discernment and truth, defining truth, what is truth, uh, what's the arbiter of what's true as opposed to what's false. And uh, I suggested we should compile that material, edit it for print, and make a thorough critique of the emerging church movement and the whole postmodern approach to truth. And uh, so he he liked that idea. The publisher liked the idea. And the result was the truth war. Let me talk to you about also uh, still trying to establish context around why the truth war uh, happened, how it came to be. Uh, you've mentioned some terms in your response there that I think will be helpful to our audience to hear some clarification on. So I'm, I've got about four terms that I'd like for you to define for us. Okay. These are just four of s selected terms that I chose from the book that John really emphasizes and touches on very heavily in the Truth War book. Define for us, Phil, modernism. 
Modernism is the uh, was the dominant way of thinking really from the middle of the 19th century until late in the 20th century. Um, and modernism posed a similar threat to Christianity uh, around the end of Charles Spurgeon's life. Uh, um, I think most people have heard about the downgrade controversy and whether you realize what that was or not. That was Spurgeon's battle against uh, incipient, incipient uh, modernism, the very beginning sort of efforts to infuse the church with modernist ideas. Modernism was the idea that truth can be known and tested primarily by science and human reason. And that's the test of what's true or not. And as a result, as modernism began to creep into the church, uh, church leaders even, and theologians who had bought into modernist principles began to question the supernatural elements in Scripture. They wanted to demythologize Scripture uh, and, and try to separate Christ's moral teachings, which they, they profess to believe and accept, from the miracles, which they clearly didn't believe in, the miraculous elements of Christ's ministry. And so they bifurcated Scripture that way, and the result was theological liberalism, a kind of Socinian approach to, you know, the truth and the gospel, and uh, redef- it involved a redefinition of the doctrine of atonement, um, because in a modernist system, you couldn't have substitutionary atonement. It didn't fit the modern notion of justice. And, uh, uh, of course, the miracles were thrown out because they they weren't considered to be scientifically credible, which is odd to me because that's the very definition of a miracle, right? right? It's something right. that it has no scientific right. explanation. Yeah. Uh, but they, they wanted to dispense with all of that because science became the arbiter of all truth. And um, uh, modernism spawned a lot of big ideas like communism and Nazism, and and most of them were uh, sort of collective approaches to, you know, human government, and and they became authoritarian and uh, violent. Uh, and, and the result of modernism was two world wars and the most violent era in all of human history. More people were killed in war in that hundred-year span than in any time prior in in uh, world history. And um, so there were, you know, communism, Nazism, we rightly think of those as evil ideologies because they produced so much human suffering, tyranny, uh, you know, top-down governments that that are were inherently unjust. By the end of the 20th century, and I would time it pretty closely to the fall of the Berlin Wall. That was the symbolic end of modernism when the Berlin Wall came down and uh, people began to realize science hasn't given us truth. Human reason hasn't given us a solid basis for uh, moral values and, and understanding and knowledge and wisdom. It just doesn't lie that direction. And uh, so that was the end of modernism. It seems like today the talking about human ideologies uh, that the ideology du jour today is Marxism. W- right. Was Marxism an outgrowth of modernism it, as well? Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. And most of what we label Marxism nowadays is a kind of neo-Marxism. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a brand of Marxism, a lot of Marxist principles and Marxist ideas that have attempted to shed some of the 
the discredited modernist ideas and uh, adapt itself to postmodernism, which was the next, the next big wave of. Uh, how humanity looks at truth and evaluates truth. Well, you just you just segued into my next term. Go ahead and define for us, Phil, if you would. What is postmodernism and what makes it distinct from modernism? Right, postmodernism. I would, uh, if you had to condense it in, you know, one idea, I would say it's this nagging suspicion that nothing can be known for sure. That th- the attainment of knowledge and truth is. Unatt- it's truth is unattainable because how you see anything depends on the perspective w- from which you look at it. So everything is is shaped by the perspective that you look at. And so you see things from your perspective. I see things from my perspective. And therefore, you have your truth. I have my truth. The fact that they might contradict doesn't seem to bother a postmodernist. The postmodernist says, well, nobody knows absolute truth because it's unknowable. If absolute truth even exists, we're not sure. We can't be true, but we can't be sure because it would take uh, a statement of absolute conviction to do that. So we really can't know anything for sure. And everything is reduced then to your story versus my story. That's why you hear that term a lot these days, story. Yeah. This is the story we live in. That's yeah. a very postmodern idea. Yeah. Would, 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 would I be correct in saying, because it seems like the new term that fits with that postmodernist definition that you've given us is standpoint epistemology. Is that, is that yeah. within that, that That's scope? exactly the idea. Standpoint epistemology says you, you, you gain knowledge from your standpoint, your perspective, but so do I. And though we have different standpoints, then we have different views on the truth. And it doesn't mean that one or the other of us is wrong, right. even if we contradict. Yeah. Moving on, uh, Phil, define for us, please, Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an ancient error, and you can actually see signs of early Gnosticism in the writings of the New Testament. The, the Apostle John in his epistles was was taking on some early Gnostic ideas. You have the encounter in Acts with uh, Peter and Simon, the, the magician. He was he was he's considered by some to be the father of Gnostic mm-hmm. ideas. Gnosticism boils down to this. Gnosticism is the idea that. Uh, there is truth out there, but it's mysterious, and in order to know it, you have to be—you have to receive that knowledge from some enlightened guru who teaches it to you or lays hands on you and mystically conveys truth to you. But truth is is an ethereal sort of mystery that you have to be enlightened into. The word gnosis in Greek means knowledge, mm-hmm. and and so to get the knowledge, you have to get it from someone else so mm-hmm. truth is is understood in a mysterious way okay and lastly phil the emergent church you, this is a term that you've alluded to already uh and and i guess that's the, the the big term that and and the big ideology that john is addressing in the book the truth war give us some history on that and then let's talk about also um do you see evidences of a sort of new morphing, a, 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 a new uh, uh, appearing of the emergent church, but in different ways today? Yeah, that's a great question. The emerging church sort of began to gel in the 1990s. I mentioned that the, the end of modernism, the symbolic end of modernism, really was the 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall. By the mid-90s, uh, there were people talking about postmodern Christianity, uh, they were attempting to blend 
postmodern values, postmodern ways of thinking with Christianity and come up with a, a variety of Christian belief that was somehow more accommodating to postmodern ways of thinking. The, the idea was is the very same way that modernism sold itself into the church in the late 1800s was to say, look, if we don't get in step with the rest of the world, we're going to lose this generation. So we need to learn postmodern ways of thinking and adapt our faith to that. And so uh, the the emerging church really represented an attempt to do that. It was a widely varied uh, movement. In fact, calling it a movement, it, it, some people would dispute whether you could ever call it a movement. Brian McLaren wanted to call it the the um, uh, the emerging conversation, mm. because postmodernism, by definition, doesn't have one point of view about truth. It's, it's everybody telling their story in a conversation. Um, Scott McKnight described it as many streams flowing into this big lake, I think was the word he used. I, I said it's more like a cesspool than a lake <laughs> because you've got streams that are clogged with doctrinal sewage mm -hmm. all flowing into this pond. Mm -hmm. And the result is this murky, cloudy mess that doesn't really look like a movement. There was no, there was no organization behind it. There was no actual leader there were voices that stood out above the others but they didn't even agree with themselves i mean they ranged from brian mclaren who was about as liberal as it's possible to be and still claimed to be an evangelical and uh, to the other end you had mark driscoll who defended conservative almost fundamentalist uh, doctrinal principles and yet he did it with a style that was that was pointedly and deliberately worldly. He thought he was contextualizing Christianity for the grunge culture of Seattle, you know. And so they were vastly different. And I doubt that either Brian McLaren or uh, Mark Driscoll even liked each other. But they were both part of, they both identified as emerging in one way or another. So there's this big muddled mess. And the only thing they all had in common was that they, they understood that this shift between modernism and postmodernism had taken place. And they believed fervently that the church needs to get on board with postmodernism or we're going to lose the next generation. You know, Phil, I read uh, initially read The Truth War years ago, and when I first read it, I barely got past the inside left panel of the, the dust cover, <laughs> yeah. because right there are these words from John, quote, this book is not friendly fire, unquote. <laughs> what what does John mean by that? Well, in the first place, John didn't write the cover copy. The okay, publisher so he does that. Okay, so the, right. okay, so educate me on that. Where where that where those words come from? It would have been an, uh, someone who worked with the publisher to come up with cover copy. I mean, it isn't that John didn't approve it. He he obviously sees that cover copy before it goes there, and and he was okay with the idea. But that's not really how John himself would describe. Okay. The book, uh, and I think what that what that editor was trying to say was that there are people who are going to um, interpret this as friendly fire in the sense that John MacArthur, who is a leading evangelical voice, is taking shots at fellow evangelicals, and um, and I think the point of that statement was, you know, they may call themselves evangelicals, right. but people who have such a loose 
uh, definition of truth and a loose view of doctrine are not evangelicals by any historic definition. Right. I mean, think about it. Postmodernism is the idea that nothing can be known for sure, and truth itself is fluid. Uh, it may change, and it does change depending on your point of view. Uh, that's contrary to everything Scripture teaches about truth and assurance, you know? These things I've written that you may know. No, right. And um, what the postmoderns were saying is that knowledge, settled knowledge, is impossible and it's hurtful actually even to be certain about anything. In fact, Brian McLaren wrote a number of things uh, that he aimed directly at John MacArthur, uh, claiming that, you know, uh, MacArthur's uh, fallacy was his his dogmatic certainty about everything he preached. Uh, he preached the Word of God as if this were sure and settled truth, and uh, Brian McLaren didn't believe that about the Bible, which I would argue— makes Brian McLaren something other than an evangelical. Right. Because in the historic sense, an evangelical holds to at least two immutable principles, sola scriptura, which is a which is the affirmation of both the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. And Brian McLaren flatly denied that. And sola fide, uh, that justification, the instrument, the sole instrument of justification is faith, not works. And Brian McLaren attacked that as well, saying that, you know, what you believe isn't important at all. It's what you do, which is the opposite of the gospel message. What are your thoughts on even using the term evangelical anymore? Given the background on guys like McLaren that you just uh, brought us up to speed on, there are those today who say that we need to ditch the term altogether. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I, I feel their pain. I mean, I agree with that. The, the word, the way it's used in the media, uh, and even by Christianity Today, a magazine that fancies itself, the, they call themselves the house organ of the evangelical movement. And yet, at their 50th anniversary, they, they ran an issue where they over, looked over their history and all. One of the articles attempted to define what is an evangelical, and they basically said, we're not too sure, but it has something to do with diversity. Uh, wow. So even okay. the house organ of the evangelical movement doesn't know what the word means anymore. It's too bad because it's a good word, and uh, it, what it means is a, 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 it describes a Christian whose focus is, is centered on the gospel, the ev- the evangel the evangel right. Evangelical means he's a gospel-centered Christian. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even that term, gospel-centered, has been used and abused uh, by big evangelical organizations who who, who now say pretty much everything is gospel is a gospel issue, you know. Uh, Racism is a gospel issue. Poverty is a gospel issue. And so by calling these things gospel issues, they've managed to smuggle every social issue Mm -hmm into their definition of the gospel, and if everything is a gospel issue, then the term itself loses any kind of meaning. Right. You know, I want to take you uh, in the truth war field to chapter six, you know, speaking of postmodernism and its impact on the church, something that stood out to me in chapter six of John's book, which is titled, Can Truth Survive in a Postmodern Society? And in that chapter, John, John says this, quote, Postmodernism suggests that if objective truth exists, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, it cannot be known objectively or with any degree of certainty. That is because, according to postmodernists, 
the subjectivity of the human mind makes knowledge of objective truth impossible, unquote. Now, with those words from John in mind, a question I have for you is, again, what are some of the ways you're seeing postmodernism adversely impact the church today? Let me give a specific example. Would you say that the woke movement falls under that? umbrella, social gospel and things of that nature. Yes, in a peripheral way, that's true. It does. Uh, and just to back up uh, on, on the th- what you read there, uh, the idea that objective truth can't be known by right. the human mind because the human mind is subjective, that statement alone co- flatly contradicts what Scripture says, mm-hmm. that the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, has has revealed to us things that have not entered into the heart of man, the Holy Spirit has revealed them to us. So one of the bedrock convictions of Christianity is that we we do know truth because the Lord has opened our eyes to what is true and what's important. And there's a hierarchy of truth. There are things we know with more certainty than some other things. But whatever Scripture says, we can know with absolute certainty. The Bible has existed for thousands of years. It hasn't changed. It's still relevant. And, and you know, its truths have never been successfully challenged or debunked. And it is still the best uh, guideline for our faith and what we believe. Christians are convinced of that, that the Bible is the Word of God, and therefore, by definition, it is true. I can be certain of that. I can be more certain of that than I than I am of any data that science gives me. There are things Scripture doesn't tell us that we know with a lesser degree of certainty, but we know them. For example, we know uh, with enough certainty how far the Earth is from the moon, mm-hmm. it's a truth that Scripture doesn't give us. But we know it with enough certainty that we've actually been able to send men there and get right. them back, you know. So so I would say we know those things. But what I know from Scripture, I know with a, a greater and even greater degree of unshakable certainty. And if you don't have that conviction, then you don't really have faith. That's the very essence of what faith right. is. It's the ability to see what is invisible, according to Hebrews 11. Right. Uh, in other words, to understand things that are mysterious to the natural human mind, but the Holy Spirit shows us. And and as a Christian, if you don't have some degree of that confidence, then I don't think you can really claim to have faith. And that was the problem with the the emerging movement. They 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 were so hung up on uncertainty and their love of uncertainty. They wrote about it all the time. Uh, and in fact in that Christianity Today article that I mentioned, the cover story, the original cover story they did on uh, the emerging church, they quoted Rob Bell and his wife, uh, where they said, well, we used to believe the Bible's absolutely true, but now we're not so sure, and it's just a liberating feeling. I'm paraphrasing what they said, right. but that was the idea. Now we're freer and feel better about things now that we don't think we know anything for sure. And that was the attitude of the emerging church. And and as a result, they moved away from biblical issues and ad- actually adopted some things that had been sort of floating around the liberal denominations for years, the social gospel. Yeah. Uh, And as you know, the social gospel has its roots uh, also in the early 20th century. Walter Rauschenbusch wrote several books on the subject. And what he wrote, if you read it today, is exactly the same rhetoric that's being used by supposedly evangelical people who are touting 
social justice. Mm -hmm. It's the same ideas where we've elevated these social issues uh, to such a level that we call them gospel issues. And now that's what we preach about rather than the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And uh, in effect, it's pushing the gospel out of center focus. And that's why I say this is not an evangelical movement. It didn't come from Scripture. It came from the secular world, and it was absorbed into the evangelical movement through the emerging church. 15, 20 years ago, emergents were talking about social justice in exactly the same terms that you hear at the Gospel Coalition meetings today or read on their blog. It's the same it, it's, it's Ecclesiastes, right? There's nothing new under that's the right. sun. You know, that's there's right. nothing new at all. Yeah. And and uh, so I would say that while while uh, today's evangelicals, uh, those who consider themselves gospel centered or they they talk about gospel centered ministry, they're redefining the gospel in order to get social justice and all that into the heart of their message. But uh, what they are actually doing is preserving a remnant of the emerging church movement. This is just a subdivision uh uh, a subset of emergent Christianity that has survived into evangelicalism. And, you know, I'm not a prophet. I don't claim any prophetic knowledge. But when the emerging church movement began to fall apart at the end of the first decade of this millennium, around 2010 or 2011, uh, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see the movement dying. But the ideas that they have infused into the evangelical movement are like so many dandelion seeds that are going to bear bitter fruit. And I didn't expect it to come this early. I didn't think the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel would move away from the gospel of salvation to talking about solely, almost exclusively social issues uh, as quickly as they have, but... Uh, I think what you're seeing is a replay of what gave us the emerging church in the first place, right. which was a replay of what gave us liberalism at the beginning of the 20th century with Walter Rauschenbusch and his social gospel. It, it, isn't, it isn't new territory. This is a recycling of an old bad idea. You know, Phil, I want to take you to chapter seven of John's book, The Truth War. This chapter is titled... The Assault on Divine Authority, Christ's Lordship Denied. In that chapter, John says this, quote, The most compelling question in the minds and on the lips of many pastors today is not what is true, but rather what works. Evangelicals these days care less about, the, uh, care less about theology than they do about methodology. Truth has taken a backseat to more pragmatic concerns of quote i'm going to ask you a two-part question first of all phil define pragmatism for us okay and then share with us your thoughts on that assertion by john that pastors these days are, are less concerned about theology and more concerned about methodology yeah pragmatism is the idea that uh truth the test of truth is basically what works mm-hmm. what will best achieve my goals and if it works, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, John actually wrote a whole book criticizing pragmatism as a method of church growth. It was called Ashamed of the Gospel. Mm. Uh, that's an older book, but it's as timely today as it was when it was written. And the entire thing is a dissection of the the overriding theme of pragmatism that, that has infused pretty much every popular church growth strategy 
from the 1970s until today, and it's been one cycle after another. Mm-hmm. Now, with regard to the quote you read, I would say that's one of the best summaries I've ever heard of of the the main point John MacArthur has tried to get across in every polemical book he's written since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. They all say basically that same thing. They make the point in different ways, but that's exactly what he's saying, is the church is far too concerned about methodology and pragmatism, what works, and not concerned enough about doctrine and the question of what is true, what is actually true. You'll hear him frequently say that his, his one concern is truth. Right. It's embodied in the title of this book. The Truth War. You know, bouncing back to chapter six, Phil, of uh, The Truth War, uh, again, that, that chapter is titled The Evil of False Teaching, How Error Turns Grace into Licentiousness. John says this in, in, in that book. Uh, he, he, said, he, he asked the question, he says, why is it, why is it so vital to fight for the truth? Okay, why is it so vital to fight for the truth? Because truth, truth is the only thing that can liberate people from the bondage of sin and give them eternal life, unquote. Now, I have a question here that, that and I, I mean this in all earnestness. It may come across as somewhat sarcastic, but I don't mean it that way. Given those words from John that I just read, is, is, is liberation from sin and receiving eternal life enough for professing Christians today? I think about what the New Testament says where Christ came to deliver us from this evil age, but we just continue to want to add something to it to make this world yeah. the, a heaven on earth. Uh, so so do you think liberation from sin and, and receiving eternal life, is that enough for, for Christians today? Is that enough for the church? Is that enough for the church to be preaching that? Yeah, I mean, you're right. The question sounds sarcastic because it, it covers everything, doesn't right. it? I mean, it covers absolutely right. everything exactly that's right. wrong with me, everything that's wrong with this world, everything that's wrong with the here and now, all the way into eternity, yes. heaven forever. And we're asking, is that enough? Right. Certainly enough for me. Right. Uh, you know, one of the criticisms this book got, uh, even before it was actually <clears throat> published, People took offense at the title, Hmm. The Truth War, they said. It's so militant. Why do you have to be militant? Why do you have to fight all the time? Why are you always writing polemical treatments of bad doctrine and all? Why can't you be more conciliatory? Why can't you join the conversation instead of always contending? Uh, But the anchor for this book is that verse in Jude, where Jude says, look, I wanted to write to you about the common salvation and all that, but I I realize I need to talk to you to encourage you to earnestly contend for the faith. Mm. He's telling them that fighting the war for truth is a paramount, such paramount concern that as much as he'd like to give them a systematic treatment of gospel truth, he's got to give them this exhortation first. And that's that's really, uh, I think a lot of Christians today find the suggestion that there's something important enough to fight for, because in a postmodern world, it's, you've got your truth, I've got mine. Mm-hmm. We don't need to fight over this. Right. That just seems uncharitable. Yeah. The idea of any kind of war or combat or earnestly contending strikes many people, including a lot of Christians, as inherently uncharitable and distasteful, and they don't want to hear about it. And yet, Scripture commands us to be soldiers, warriors, fighters for the truth. You know, you may disagree with me on this one, Phil, and feel free to do so, but I think that within the church today, 
pragmatism has led to such a deconstructionist view of sin, a deconstructionist view that we're all going to be held accountable by God, that there is a God who holds us accountable. Um, and, and so that that deconstruction, I think, is led to or contributed to, in my view anyway, by what I call gracism. There, there's such an overemphasis on the grace of God, uh, and that's by default contributed to a lesser emphasis on the, on the reality of sin. We don't even call it sin anymore. We don't use the word anymore. So to what degree do you think pragmatism has over time just continued to chip away uh, within the church I'm talking about, about the doctrine of sin and that yeah, reality? Absolutely, that happens. And it's a corruption of the idea of grace. Mm-hmm. And it's a minimizing of the seriousness of sin. But you can see how pragmatism leads to that. I mean, we this pragmatism goes way back, but really sort of reached its peak as a church growth theory with the... With the uh, uh, seeker-sensitive model of mm-hmm. church growth, uh, you know, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren. Right. Those guys were, look, we need to reach unchurched Harry, therefore we need to find out his felt needs and address those. And no unbeliever is going to tell you that his felt need is sin, right? genuine guilt. He wants to be told that he shouldn't feel that guilt, or that he's not that bad, or that we're all in the same boat, and therefore this is not an important, you know, issue. Whereas Scripture says, it's true that sin is universal, and it's true that human depravity is total in the sense that we are as thoroughly infected with sin as we can possibly be. There's no part of our character, our minds, our emotions, our will. All of it is infected with sin and and sinful motives. And when you realize that, the, the response is supposed to be like that of Peter when he realized who Christ is. He fell on his face and said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Right. He, he didn't. He he didn't think it proper for a holy person like Christ to be in the presence of such sin, and in the response to to an acknowledgement like that, that's the that's the beginning of genuine repentance mm-hmm. to recognize how thoroughly sinful we are. It's- in response to that repentance, God shows us His grace. Grace isn't a covering for unrepentant sin. Isn't that the same thing that happened, though, with the woman at the well in John 4? It was one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Towards the end of the chapter, here's this woman running into town to tell everybody what? Come see a man who told me everything Everything I I ever did. did. Yeah. I know. Uh, That's that's amazed me, too. It's on the face of the text there. The thing that struck her about Christ was he knew all about her sin. And, uh, and of course, she was ashamed about it. But... uh, uh, it amazed her that he knew it, and yet he'd taken water from her and all of that. Again, grace always responds in in that kind, gracious way to repentant right. sin, people right. who are repentant about their sin. But uh, for someone who's totally unrepentant, they can't presume on the grace of God. Man, that's a great point. That's a great point, Phil. You know, I want to park for a few moments on the matter of heresy. Uh, which, again, is another point of focus in John's book, The Truth War. Um, in uh, chapter five, chapter five, again, uh, titled Heresy's Subtlety. You touched on this earlier, but I want to point out a quote from John in chapter five of The Truth War, where John says this, quote, Truth never changes with the times, but heresy 
always does. In fact, heresy's subtlety is seen most clearly in the ever shifting tides of change. Okay. Now I concur completely with John here, but my question to you, Phil is, is critical thinking a sin in the church today? Uh, critical thinking is essential. Like if we're talking about discernment, right? If you're exactly. talking about critical theory, what people call critical <laughs> yeah. theory, no, but, but you know, critical thinking, the, the ability to, Distinguish between truth and falsehood. That's essential. It's what Scripture calls discernment, and and um, it's something we all need to pursue. And it is one of those things that doesn't fit well in the postmodern paradigm, because if everybody's truth is equally valid, any truth claim you make is not supposed to be disputed, that rules out the whole idea of discernment. Mm-hmm. That rules out, you know, you being able to tell anyone else they're wrong. Uh, and it's why when somebody does say, no, that's a wrong point of view, you're mm-hmm. wrong about that, mm-hmm. it's the critic who instantly gets tagged as uncharitable, and he may have the most loving motives uh, conceivable to trying to correct an error that could actually damn the soul of someone, and yet postmodern observers are going to look at him and say, he's being mean to that person because he's telling, he's failing to validate their faith journey. Yeah, the tone police. Yeah. The tone police come out. Yep, right? the tone police. Um, you know, Phil, when I when you look at the the social and 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 the political unrest that's occurring in the, in the world today, I think it probably be argued, at least from where I sit, that fundamentally that unrest is a battle over what the truth is, over what the truth is. It's the same question, right, that Pontius Pilate asked in John eighteen thirty eight, what is true. Right. So we're still dealing with that same question. And I want to uh, quote from John again in the truth war where he said this, uh, quoting John, strong convictions about any point of truth are judged supremely arrogant. This is exactly what you were just talking about. Strong convictions about any point of truth are judged supremely arrogant and hopelessly naive. Everyone is entitled to his own truth, unquote. Now, as I think about those words from John in light of what we've been talking about with the social gospel and its impact on the church, especially as it relates to the issue of, of postmodernism, I think fundamentally postmodernism is still what we're dealing with today. It's just disguised in a different wrapper, right, with a different bow No question on about top. it. Um, as we wrap up this episode of the Truth Matters podcast, I want you to nail down the question, why is the truth war relevant still today why is a book that was written 13 years ago the idea of which goes back 15 years why is the truth war relevant today still because the same postmodern attack on truth is is still being used within the evangelical movement uh against and younger christians who've been uh, more or less indoctrinated from kindergarten on with postmodern values, postmodern view of truth and and objectivity, they're very susceptible to it. They're more susceptible to it than someone your age, my age would be. We were taught that two plus two equals four, right? And people are literally being taught today that that isn't quite so sure. I, right. I'm sure you've seen the yeah. the Twitter threads, the vast yeah. Twitter threads where all these postmodern people are trying to explain different ways that two plus two might not equal four. Yeah, I've know? seen the memes and the graphics trying to right. pass that off as, as accurate. You know, again, that's another, I guess, mathematical epistemology, maybe. Yeah. You, well, ma- because example. math is inherently dealing with 
objective truth claims. Mm-hmm. And and in order to validate the postmodern approach, they have to question the objectivity of even mathematic formulas. Right. So uh, w- what you just said, if you turn it around and look at it the other way, uh, if if settled knowledge is... Uh, you know, impossible. Nothing is truly certain. That means that doubt becomes a virtue. Right. You, you hear this in some of the rhetoric that comes from evangelical leaders. I think it was Tim Keller who said doubts are okay to have. He he compared doubts to antibodies that keep our faith healthy. Mm. I don't. I don't. I don't understand that metaphor. I don't know what he intended to mean by it, but. Uh, it's not a new idea. I'd say for at least the past 30 years, there have been evangelicals who've been trying to um, glorify and modify the idea that doubt is is a good thing, a mm-hmm. healthy thing, a good thing for your your faith, that you should entertain doubts and live with them, and settled knowledge is dangerous because it will make you arrogant, you know, if you're too convinced about anything. And uh, those are those are ideas that I, I don't think any prior generation of Christians, all the way back to the apostles, would have seen any sense in. I mean, if if we believe in sola fide, that right. this sole instrument of salvation is faith, why in the world would we glorify its opposite, doubt? Indeed, I don't get it. And I, we do all have doubts. I get that. I understand that part of it. It is perfectly normal to question things, and and there is a sense in which it's healthy to examine all things so that you can hold fast to that which is good. But to nurture doubt, to treat skepticism as if it's a healthy thing instead of a a, a dangerous assault on the faith, that's that's a stupid thing for Christians to do. Yeah, doubt is a virtue. Doubt is a pursuit. Right, right. Just, just but see, that is sense. the postmodern. I mean, that's part of the postmodern. The way postmodernism turns virtue itself on its head. Right. You know, the old virtues are all gone. The new virtues are skepticism and, um, um, you know, diversity. Diver- and meaning diversity of all kinds, including you can have your truth, I can have mine. Right. We'll just live with the fact that we. We see things. So the only thing that's verboten, the only thing that will get you criticized is if you are too certain about anything. You can pretty much advocate any idea you want yeah. except certainty. Right. Phil Johnson has been our guest today on the Truth Matters podcast. Phil, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you it very me. much. I'm your host, Daryl Harrison. We appreciate you watching and listening to this inaugural episode of the Truth Matters podcast. We'll hope you will join us next time for a new episode. Thanks for joining us.